Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. have a Bible, if you please take it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our attention this morning will be devoted to verses 19 to 22. We are coming ever so closely to the end of this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. After this week, we'll have one more message from 1 Thessalonians, and then I'll be out for two weeks with our team in Central Asia, so please pray for our team as we go to minister, and then Lord willing, when I return, we'll begin a brief series through the book of Jonah, but we're in chapter 5 this morning looking at verses 19 to 22. Let me pray as you're turning there. Father, we come now to humble ourselves before the all-sufficient, authoritative Word of God. And so we pray now that you would speak to your people through the preaching of your Word, that you would use it to edify, to strengthen, to build up your church, that you would teach us, that we would delight in your law this morning. And so God... Do your work in our hearts today, and would you glorify your name, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 5, verses 19 to 22 is where we are. I wonder if you have seen in the news headlines recently uh, news of revivals that are reportedly happening all across our country. Many of them are happening on Uh, college campuses, university campuses. Have you seen these reports? Now, I'm I'm not here this morning um, in any way to attest to the uh, validity of these reports. I I haven't been there to observe them for myself, nor have I followed them very closely. But it did cause me to think this week, especially in light of our text here this morning, of verses 19 to 22, about Jonathan Edwards. Many of you have perhaps heard of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is known as the greatest American theologian of all time. He lived during the Great Awakening in New England. Remember that swept through the American colonies in the late 1700s. And Edwards, he actually wrote quite extensively on the nature of true revival. What, what real revival looks like, not only because there were many who had an unhealthy skepticism about it, they had a skepticism about what was happening, but also because there were abuses that were taking place as a result of these revivals, what Edwards calls excesses. And so Edwards, he wrote to identify biblically what are the marks of a true revival. 
And he had one overruling principle. Namely, we are to, quote, take the scriptures as our guide. And in his work entitled, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, I won't give you the whole title, it's like a paragraph long, Edwards gives five distinguishing marks, a five-fold test of whereby, he says, a work of the Spirit of God can be discerned. What are those five marks? Let me give them to you. Mark number one, the Spirit always leads men to Christ. The Spirit convinces men of Christ. He leads them to Christ. Remember in John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, He will glorify me. The, The main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to shine the spotlight on Christ. He He leads men to Christ. He convinces them of Christ. He shines the spotlight on Christ. That's mark number one. Mark number two, the Spirit always causes men to forsake sin and set their affections on the things above. To forsake sin and set their affections on holy things. Again, in John chapter 16, Jesus says, When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the work of the Spirit is to bring about the conviction of sin, the desire for righteousness, to forsake sin, hate sin, repentance, pursuit of holiness. That's the work of the Spirit. Mark number three, Edward says, the Spirit always produces an awakened ability to discern between truth and error. The Spirit produces an awakened ability to discern truth from error. Mark number four, the Spirit manifests Himself with a spirit of love. Love for God love for others. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is love. And the Spirit's work, the Spirit's activity always manifests itself in love. Fifth and finally, and it has bearing on our text today. The Spirit, Edward says, always leads men to a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures as the Word of God. A greater regard For the scripture as the word of God. Edwards wrote, it was noticeable in New England that the Bible was, quote, in much greater esteem and use than before. A love for the word of God, a hunger for the word of God, a delight in the word of God, a reverence for the word of God. These are the five marks, Edwards says, that are the distinguishing work of the spirit. And where these five marks are present... Where they're happening, where they're taking place, Edward says, it's undoubtedly from the Spirit of God. And yet, here in our passage this morning, church, the Apostle Paul reminds us here that there are things that we can do to stifle, to undermine, to hinder the Spirit's work in our lives and in our church. There are things we can do to hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Think about that with me for a moment. <laughs> we, we are talking about the omnipotent, sovereign, all-powerful Spirit of God, third person of the Godhead. And yet Paul tells us here that there are things we can do to limit, to quench his work and activity in our lives. That's staggering to me. And especially, as we'll see here today, in regard to that fifth mark, the attitude we take toward the Word of God. So listen to me. We will unleash or hinder the Spirit's working, the Spirit's power, the Spirit's influence in our lives, and that will be in direct connection to our posture toward His Word. Let's see it together. First Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have your place there, out of honor for the reading of God's Word, would you stand with me as we read this together? I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. This is now the fourth sermon in this closing section here of Paul's letter, verses 12 to 28. And I told you, if you remember, that this closing section here actually has two sections. There's two parts here to this closing section. Part one, notice there in verses 12 to 22, where Paul, he has been giving here this barrage of rapid-fire commands. I, I totaled up here 17 commands, 17 imperatives just in verses 12 to 22, one right after the other. That's where we've been. And then part two, as we'll see next week in verses 23 to 28, is really his closing benediction to this church. So he's wrapping things up here. But this is this list here, far from unimportant. No, because in verses 12 to 22, Paul's aim here is to address how the gospel and how the certainty of the work of Christ in chapters 4 and 5 and his return shapes the church. The corporate life of the church. That's his overall concern here in this final section. In fact, if you had to summarize it here in one command... Notice there in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. This section is all about how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And so Paul's been addressing several relationships within the church and how we do that. If you notice in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, he addresses the church's relationship to her leaders. 
those who are over you in the Lord, your pastors and elders. And then in verses 14 and 15, he addresses the church's responsibility to one another. This is how we care for one another in the church. And then last week, we saw, notice in verses 16 to 18, where Paul describes their relationship to God. We rejoice, we pray, we give thanks at all times and in all circumstances. But now, this final part of this list of commands here, notice in verses 19 to 22, Paul addresses now their relationship to the work of the Spirit in the midst of the church. And these final commands, they seem to be confined to a single unit here. Because the previous clause, notice in verse 18, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It, it breaks up this list here because it's, it's referring back, that statement is to those commands in verses 16 to 18. So verses 19 to 22, they, they seem to be a, a distinct section here from the previous ones. And yet, unlike some commentators, I, I do think these commands here in verses 19 to 22 are related. They, they, aren't, they aren't separate, they aren't standalone, they aren't unconnected here. So verse 19, do not... Quench the Spirit. We'll see what that means in a moment. And then in verse 20, he gives one way the Spirit can be quenched. Do not despise prophecies. So the despising of prophecies can lead to the quenching of the Spirit. And we'll have to wrestle with what Paul means there by prophecies. Okay? And then, in verse 21, if we aren't to despise but welcome these prophetic utterances in the church, Paul does tell us, however, that we will need to be discerning as we do so. And so he says in verse 21, test everything, which is connected back to verse 20 with that conjunction there, but, but test everything. So we, we don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Be discerning. And as we do, verses 21 and 22, we hold fast to what is good and we abstain from what's evil. So these commands here, verses 19 to 22, they seem to be interconnected to me. Again, he's addressing the church's relationship to the work of the Spirit in their midst. Verse 19, don't quench the Spirit Beloved, you and I can respond to the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we quench His activity in our lives. Now, before we look in detail here at these commands in verses 19 to 22, I need to address one thing. One thing. First of all, I just want to be upfront and honest with you about how I interpret and understand verses 19 to 22. These are not easy verses. I had trouble this week in my preparation with these verses, mainly because there is so much disagreement among biblical scholars about how to understand these verses. And so, if I had to summarize the disagreement for you here, I, I would do so 
by identifying and defining here really two different positions, okay? Two, two camps, we'll say, all right? Let me just give them to you. Number one, first one would be what we call the continuationist. Continuationist. This, this camp would understand that the sign gifts of tongues, prophecy, are still operative in the church today, still active, still continuing in the church today. That's why they're called continuationists. So these gifts here, they weren't limited to the apostolic church alone, but they, they are still functioning, they're still continuing even today. And some of you may hold this position. And there also are many prominent scholars and pastors that you would love and respect and read who are continuationists. So, in my opinion, this is not an enemy camp at all, okay? And, and both parties are going to agree on most things until we get to passages like this one. Or, you know, the latter part of 1 Corinthians, all right? That's the continuationist. Here's the second position. The cessationist. The cessationist, or meaning to cease. This, this camp understands that during the apostolic age, during the foundation of the early church, these sign gifts were given to authenticate the apostles' preaching and the establishing of the new covenant era. That's why they were given. But then, these sign gifts of, of tongues and prophecy, they ceased. They came to an end after the age of the apostles and with the finalization of the canon of Scripture as the final revelation of God. So there's no, no new revelation that's given. So God is, God is now only speaking through the written Scripture. So those are the two camps. The continuationist, the cessationist, and each of those two camps are going to understand this passage differently. You see, you see the problem there? Okay. For example, the continuationist is going to argue that what Paul is doing here in verses 19 to 22 is he is regulating the gift of prophecy. And they would say that the cessationist is actually guilty of doing what Paul is forbidding in verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Whereas the cessationist would argue that what Paul is dealing with here is the believer's reception of spirit-inspired words from God, whether written or spoken. And so he's forbidding us from stifling, quenching the Spirit's work in our lives by His Word. So one example of quenching the Spirit would be our attitude toward the Word. So where do I land? Well, I want to very humbly say this morning, recognizing that I could be mistaken in my interpretation of the Bible, okay, that I would affirm the cessationist position. But I'm willing to be swayed if you can prove it to me otherwise from the Bible, okay? But let me just give you one reason why I, I would hold, I think, this view. And I'm sorry I don't have more time to go into detail. One reason I would hold this cessationist position loosely is because, especially in light of our text here today, of the foundational role 
of New Testament apostles and prophets in establishing the church. The foundational role of this office of apostle and prophet. Let me just show you in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. If you look there, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so now that the foundation of the church has been laid, we no longer have authoritative apostles. Like Paul, for example. The gift of apostleship, I think, or office of apostleship has ceased. And in the same way, prophets, like apostles here in Ephesians 2, also play a key role in the founding and establishing of the church. And this foundational role of both apostles and prophets points, I believe, to the authority of their words, suggesting then that prophecy in the New Testament has the same, I believe, authority as prophecy in the Old Testament. So if prophecy still exists today, if it hasn't ceased, it's hard for me, at least, to resist concluding that the foundation of the church hasn't yet been completed, which I think Ephesians chapter 2 tells us it has. And if people are still speaking revelatory words today, then I think it can undermine, it can threaten the sole final authority of the Scripture. Now... I know the cessation or the continuationist is going to say that prophecies and scriptures don't have the same authority, but I, I just, to me, that just seems to be the inevitable conclusion. I'll say one last thing. Notice this quote from Tom Schreiner here, New Testament scholar. He writes, The sole and final authority of scripture is threatened if so called prophets today give revelations which have the same authority as scripture. Perhaps the gift of prophecy existed for a few hundred years in the early church since it took some time for the church to agree upon the settled canon of Scripture. But the gift slowly and gradually faded away while the New Testament canon was being settled and later widely accepted. Since the church is founded upon the apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets are no longer functioning today. So it would seem that those gifts aren't still active today, but they ceased with the closing of the apostolic age and the finalization of the New Testament canon of Scripture. Now, that may be way more than you wanted to know. Okay? All right. Now you can check back in. But I think it's helpful in understanding our passage here this morning because our passage addresses this issue of prophecy. And so I want to look at this text with you under three headings. There are five imperatives here, but I I just see three main ones, okay? Two negative, one positive. First, command number one, do not quench the Spirit. Verse 19. Now, one last thing I just need to say here, okay? I, I don't see these commands here as a corrective. I don't think this is a rebuke from Paul here. Rather, they are, I think, like last week's commands, an encouragement to the church. Keep doing 
what you're doing, Thessalonians. And in order to do that, don't do this. The reason I think that is because first, I think it fits with the overall tenor of the letter. You're doing well. You're thriving. It's not a corrective. And the second reason I think that is because their history doesn't show they're violating these commands. Quenching the spirit. Despising prophecy. They're not doing that, I don't think. Because if you look back in chapter 1, verse 5, the spirit had worked powerfully through the preaching of the gospel and brought about full conviction based on Paul's prophetic word to them. Or in chapter 4, verse 8, they haven't, I don't think, disregarded Paul's word, which he says is actually God's word. Paul thinks his word is God's word. So I don't think this is a corrective. I think it's an encouragement. Verse 19, though, look there. It begins with a prohibition, a negative command. Look what he says. Do not quench the Spirit. Another translation says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Now, notice two things here about this command. Number one, first of all, is that word quench. Do not quench the Spirit. That word, it can also mean to stifle. It can mean to extinguish. It can mean to stop. Literally, in, in the context of putting out a fire. For example, Mark chapter 9, notice here, verse 48, Jesus says that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is not extinguished. It is not put out. Or in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says, to take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish or quench the flaming darts of the evil one. So to quench means to extinguish a flame, to to suppress it, to stifle it, to put it out. Here's the second thing to notice, though, about this command. Notice that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is pictured here as a fire. His ministry is like a fire. Acts chapter 2, remember, the Spirit descends at Pentecost in the form of tongues of Fire. So the work, the ministry, the activity of the Spirit, it's described with the imagery of fire. So verse 19, Paul is saying, Thessalonians, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't don't quench Him. Don't extinguish His activity. Don't stifle His ministry in your life. And in your church, no, do not quench him. Now again, that is an incredible statement. (laughs) That you and I, by how we live, the, the choices, the actions, the decisions we make, our attitudes, we can actually have the ability to restrict or release what the Spirit does in our lives. We can quench him. We can hinder. We can suppress his work in us and in the church. 
So the Holy Spirit comes as a sanctifying fire, Paul says, and you and I can either fan that into flame or we can douse it with water. That's incredible. So then, what does it mean to quench him? What does it mean to quench the Spirit? Because Paul doesn't give us any more detail in verse 19 what it means. Although I do think verse 20 is going to shed some light on part of what that means. But what does it mean to quench him? How how do we do that? Well, this isn't the only place in Paul's letters where he gives similar commands to verse 19. So that's, that's a helpful way. Where, where does he talk about this in other letters? For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, it's almost the exact same command, but one, one difference. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, not only can the Spirit be quenched, the Spirit can be grieved. You can grieve Him. He experiences grief. He's a person, not an it. Now, those are almost identical commands. In fact, I would argue that Quenching and grieving are really two sides of the same coin. So quenching is what we do. Grieving is what he does in response. We quench, he grieves. Okay, what does it mean to grieve him? (laughs) What does it mean to or quench him? Well, look there in Ephesians 4. If you're there, you need to see it. Ephesians 4. If you look at the context, context is key. Paul is exhorting this church there to put off the old self, sin, and put on the new self, righteousness, in Christ. And and that, that bookends verse 30. Look there, verse 29, Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So put off the old mouth, the old self, put on the new. And then the other bookend, notice in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put it off. But verse 32, put on these, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Put on. So what's the context? It's their sanctification. Put off the old self and put on righteousness, the new self. And to not do that, verse 30 grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit was given to you, beloved, in order to sanctify you. 
The Spirit was given to you in order to make you holy, in order to conform you more into the image of Jesus Christ and to resist that work, to fight against that work, to push back against that work, grieves Him and quenches Him. In fact, I think this is the same idea implied in the phrase, walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 Why are we to walk by the Spirit? So that you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, pursue your sanctification. So to not grieve the Spirit, to not quench the Spirit, listen, is to position myself in such a way to open my life to His sanctifying work in me. And I think you can even see that in the context here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Look there. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 19. I I think the context still here is sanctification. How so? Well, look back with me, chapter 3, verse 13. What is Paul's prayer for these Thessalonian believers? That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's praying that they would be holy. Or look there at chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants you, His will for you is to be holy. Or even we'll see next time, look at verse 23 of chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. What's the context here? The context is your sanctification. So beloved, to quench the spirit is to resist It is to reject the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life. Because wherever He's present, there, there is fire that consumes and cleanses and purifies. And so Paul's saying, don't you dare put out the Spirit's fire, His sanctifying work in your life. Because when when the Spirit comes in power, He comes to cleanse you. And we don't, we don't want to quench that work. We don't want to put out that work. J.I. Packer, he writes this in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He says, we may quench the Spirit by resisting and undervaluing His work and by declining to yield to His influence in our lives. That's what it means to quench the Spirit. So verse 19, Paul says, don't quench Him. Open yourself up to his sanctifying work. Pursue your sanctification with everything in you. And then in verse 20, he turns and gives one example, one way in which we can or we won't quench his work. But before we look at that, let let me just ask you this morning, Christian, how are you posturing yourself in such a way where you are inviting and welcoming the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit into your life. Because 
by the posture of your heart and by the attitudes and actions you do, you can actually close yourself off. You can put out his sanctifying fire in your life. So how are you doing that? Because then, notice in verse 20, Paul shows us one way, one specific application, how not to quench the Spirit in our lives. Point number two, second, notice, do not despise prophecies. Verse 20. This is the second prohibition, the second negative command. So verse 19, don't quench him. Don't quench the Spirit. And verse 20, don't despise prophecies. Now, how are those two commands related? Are they? I think they are. Now, I think two questions that need to be answered here in order to understand this command is, okay, first, what are prophecies? And second, how, what does it mean to despise them? So question number one, first, what are prophecies? Look at verse 20. Prophecies, New American Standard translates it as prophetic utterances. Propheteia is the Greek word, meaning God-given, God-inspired revelations. Utterances. And these prophecies, these prophetic utterances, can either be spoken words or written words. These can refer to spoken words or written words. Let me show you what I mean. Sometimes, in the New Testament, this can refer to prophets who deliver brand new revelations directly from God. So, for example, Acts chapter 11 Verse 27, in the church at Antioch, look what Luke records here. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be great famine all over the world. So notice, in this church, prophet stands up, direct revelation from God. Although it's not always foretelling something, but it's a direct revelation from a prophet. Or Acts chapter 13, look there, verse 2, Luke tells us there were prophets in the church, again at Antioch, and through them, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, speaking through the prophets, Set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Direct revelation through a prophet spoken. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Look here, 1 Corinthians 14. Paul there, he's outlining and explaining the gift of prophecy. And in verse 29... He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, this is a revelation from God, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. 
In fact, if you go back to verse 3 of that chapter, chapter 14, he tells you the purpose of the gift of prophecy is to speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So this is, this is a revelation from God. This is a divine insight. This is a, this is a word from the Lord in a time of need. So it can be spoken words. But prophecy isn't just spoken words from God. It can also be God's written word as well. Look here. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 20 and 21. He's, he's speaking here. Paul, or Peter's speaking here about the inspiration of the scripture. And he says, verse 20 2 Peter 1, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, so this is the written word of God, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So notice, the Holy Spirit here, Peter says, is superintending God's written inspired revelation in Scripture. Wow! <laughs> and so I think we can say that prophecy, my understanding, prophecy then is the revelation of the Word of God spoken and written under the inspiration of the Spirit. Let me say that again. The g- prophecy is the revelation of the Word of God, whether spoken or written, under the inspiration of the Spirit. John Stott, in his commentary, says this, The church is to listen to whatever messages purport to come from God and not to despise or reject them unheard and untested. So prophecy is the Word of God Written or spoken. Now, the big difference here between Paul's day and our day, and this is where (laughs) continuationist and cessationists disagree, is that Paul is writing here prior to the completion of the New Testament canon. So yes, it's being written, it's being assembled at this time. In fact... 1 Thessalonians is the earliest letter of the Apostle Paul. It's written sometime around 49 to 51 AD. The, the official list of the New Testament canon wasn't actually known and formalized until about the second century. But once that canon was completed, once I think that foundation was laid, once and for all, it seems to me the gift of prophecy ceased. But now, church, we have the written word of God. Sufficient, infallible, authoritative. And now the Spirit prophesies through the word, written. The preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word, the speaking forth, the exhorting from the word. And 
There's nothing to be added to it. There's nothing to be subtracted from it. This is the most sure prophetic word. And so, if that's what prophecy is, the revelation of God's word now contained, I think, in the 66 books of the Bible, then question number two, what does it mean to despise it? I think the answer seems simple now. Question number two, what does it mean to despise prophecy? Look there, verse 20. That word despise, it can mean to treat something with contempt. To, to reject it. The word, the word implies dismissive disdain. So what does it mean then to despise prophecy? Beloved, it means that when the word of God is spoken, whether it is preached, whether it is read, whether it is communicated to you through a brother or sister, no matter what my response outwardly might be, inwardly I'm actually saying, I can take it or leave it. That's to despise it. That God's word, which is intended to sanctify me, isn't received by me. And so, the receiving of God's word isn't selective. It isn't optional. It isn't, uh, I don't like that part. Take it or leave it. No, you, you don't push it aside. You don't neglect it. No, to do that is to despise it. Whether it comes from an admonishment from your pastor, verse 12, or from someone else in the church, verse 14, no, don't despise God's word. And listen, this is how, I think, verse 19, don't quench the spirit, and verse 20, don't despise prophecy, are tied together. How it links these two commands together, because any attempt to detract from the word, to, to diminish, to disregard it in any way, will have a quenching effect on the spirit's work in your life. There, there, there is no more dampening effect on the work of God in your life than to disregard the word of God in your life. But on the other hand, if you want to be inflamed by the spirit, if you want to walk in the spirit, if you want to be led by the spirit, then you must make sure that you're listening properly and paying careful attention to God's word. This is why preaching is so significant. This is why when God's word is brought to bear on your life, the word is spoken. Maybe it's in your small group. As you're applying it, you listen and you heed and you respond rightly because of what this book is. And because of the sanctifying effect it's meant to have on your life. So don't quench the spirit by despising prophecy. 
How might, it, how might we do that? How might an individual, how might a church do that? Well, let me give you, I think, a few ways by refusing to hear or listen to the word spoken. You become apathetic to it. You become indifferent to it. I don't have to listen to that. I don't have to apply that part. You don't pay careful attention to it. You neglect it. You, you don't heed its exhortations. You don't heed its admonishments. Or here's how you become like the man in James chapter 1 who looks at himself in the mirror of the word and he hears it and he does nothing about it. No, don't quench the spirit by neglecting the word in your life. And the main way in which God sanctifies you, Christian, is by his word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But then, notice in sort of a, an effort to attempt to balance out this prohibition, these prohibitions in verses 19 and 20, Paul gives a third command. Look there, verse 21. But test everything. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. In other words, don't reject, don't neglect the word of God, but on the other hand, don't think that everything that claims to be divine is the word of God. Point number three, test everything. Verses 21 and 22, look at verse 21. That word test there, it means to examine, it means to inspect something carefully. So, it's a word used to test the authenticity of something. So, it means, I think, distinguishing between what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. So, we're to hunger to hear from God in His Word. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecy. But we're also to test what we hear. In other words, verse 21, I think here, is a call to discernment. Paul's saying be discerning. Be perceptive. Be vigilant in what claims to be from God. In other words, Paul is saying be teachable, but don't be gullible. We should, we should crave the work of the Spirit in our church, in our lives, but we should test, we should examine, we should evaluate what we are hearing to see if it is really from the Spirit. In fact, in this church, it appears that some false teaching was beginning to creep in. If you remember about the return of Christ, some were thinking that His return had already happened. In fact, we're going to see it later in 2 Thessalonians. Look there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. It, it's just, it gets worse, apparently, in this church because Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seemingly to be from us the apostles, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you. 
Test it. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test everything. Test what you hear. And beloved, this is just as relevant for our day as it was for Paul's day. Amen? I mean, if, if discernment was needed in Paul's day, how much more is it needed today? Things that purport to be from God and words from God and, and teachings from God. I mean, you, you can imagine at this time, without the completion of the New Testament canon, right? These Thessalonians, baby Christians, remember, they're wondering, okay, how do we know what's divine and how do we know what isn't divine? And Paul says, test it. And while he doesn't specify here the test, what the test is, you can actually find out exactly what the test is in other places in the New Testament. How do we test prophecies claiming to be from God. Here's just a few tests. A few tests for you, okay? First of all, test number one. We test it with the other scriptures. The, the reformers called this the analogy of scripture. Meaning, does it, does it line up with the other scriptures? And so, like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, we must be sure that what is said lines up with the rest of what the Bible says. Because the scripture alone is our final authority in all matters of life and doctrine. This book alone is authoritative and sufficient and divine. That's the first test. Second test is it a teaching that is consistent with godliness? Consistent with godliness. First Timothy, remember chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says there, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching, notice, that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So, does the teaching accord with godly living? That's test number two. Test number three. Does it come from a reliable source? That's exactly what chapters two and three of this letter have been about. Paul is defending there his, his ministry and his character. Does the teaching come from someone who's reliable? Here's the fourth and final test I'll give you. Is it consistent with the gospel preached by the apostles? Is it consistent with the gospel? Galatians 1, remember, verse 8, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If it isn't consistent 
with the message that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not from God. It's a different gospel than my gospel, which is the true gospel. Even if I were to preach it to you. And church, for us, I think this test is even more simple. Because we have the standard of truth. And the question we need to ask is, is it what we find in the Bible? Don't believe it because I said it. Don't believe it because MacArthur said it. Don't believe it because Sproul said it. Don't believe it because Piper said it. Does it line up with the Bible? Don't swallow everything you hear just because you like the person. They're smart. They got lots of letters behind their name. It seems new. It seems innovative. Test everything. Which means everything that is spoken or taught here needs to be tethered to the Bible. We go back to the Bible. We want everything in our church to be richly biblical in our teaching, in my preaching. I want you looking in the Bible. That's why I say look, notice, see. And so we want everything in our church from the preaching all the way down to the children's ministry to be rich with biblical content. And as we do in verse 21, notice there, we hold fast what is good. In verse 22, we abstain from every form of evil. Not just, not just morally, but we also abstain from every source that is not good. Every source that is evil, what pretends to be divine and isn't. No, we test everything by the all-sufficient, authoritative Word of God. Test it all. And so by way of application, I want to just go back to something I said at the beginning. Beloved, what would it look like for God to bring revival here? Like this church. What would that, what would that look like? An outpouring of the Spirit of God in power. Do we want that? Do we, do we long for that? If we do, at least in part, it will mean that we not quench the Spirit or despise His Word. Again, J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, he offers there three ways in which churches fail here. They, they, they quench the Spirit and they despise God's Word and, and it hinders, he says, an outpouring of the Spirit. Let me just close by giving you these three applications and we'll be done. First, Packer says that one of the ways we quench the Spirit and despise prophecies is we don't heed the commands of the Bible. We don't heed God's word. He says this, heedlessness, quote, of these exhortations and warnings, meaning from the Bible, is likely to quench the spirit both in personal and in corporate life. In other words, when a church doesn't heed God's 
word and they walk in sin. They don't heed the commands of God. They live in sin. And he says, when the spirit has been, quote, quenched, it is beyond our power to undo the damage we have done. We can only cry to God in penitence, asking that he will revive his work. You see what he's saying there? In other words, we must get on our faces in brokenness and contrition over our sin. Repentance, if we want to see the Spirit move in power. That's the first one. Second one, Packer says, notice this quote, unnatural as it may be, the Spirit's power is absent from the majority of our churches. That's quite a definitive statement. What is the cause of that, he says? Certainly, the most direct result is the devaluing of the Bible and the gospel. Do we treasure this book? Do we treasure the gospel? Remember, that's the, that's the Spirit's ministry. Shine the spotlight on Christ. Do we love Christ? Do, do we come to the written word of God so that we might see the living word of God? Spirit's always drawing our hearts to worship Christ, Edward said. Third, finally, interestingly, Packer says this, and I'll close with this. The quenching of the Spirit is due to attitudes that stifle His work in what he calls our traditionalism. Now, we as Baptists, we don't know anything about tradition, right? What he means here, here's what he means. He's not saying tradition's bad. He means that the forms and, and traditions and the things we do in our spiritual life, it just becomes going through the motions. Like, maybe for you this morning as you came into this room, just going through the motions. That's what I do. Packer says, you've lost your first love. Why do you do what you do? Packer then closes with this. Churches tend to run in grooves of traditionalism and such grooves quickly turn into graves. Do we hunger for the word of God? Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.